Well, welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival, the opening session of this Saturday in the energy environment sequence. We have a, a number of discussions and we're going to start today with a particularly appropriate one on the future of water in Texas. Uh, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you to the second annual Texas Tribune Festival and to, to this discussion. We are going to uh, ha lead, have this discussion. We've got four honored guests that will be able to discuss the future of water in Texas. And we will spend about 45 minutes discussing uh, issues. And uh, my job as moderator is just to uh, move that discussion along. My name is Danny Reibel, and I'm the uh, director of the Center for Research and Water Resources at the here at the University of Texas. And uh, again, my job is really just to help that discussion along. At the end of that 45 minutes, we will have uh, hopefully 15 minutes of question and answers from the audience. We'd ask you to speak into a microphone that will be passed around uh, if you would raise your hand at that point in time. <coughs> Let me introduce our uh, discussants. To begin with, we have immediately to my left is Becky Motal. She's the Lower Colorado River Authority General Manager, a job that she undertook beginning in 2011. She's been working with the Lower Colorado River Authority since 1972, after receiving a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas, uh, and then also a law degrees, uh, returning to LCRA in 1987 as a manager of economic and financial planning. She also serves on the board of the Texas Public Power Association. Next to her, we have Andy Sampson, who is the former executive director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, executive director of the Texas Nature Centers Conservancy, and founder of the Parks and Wildlife Foundation of Texas. He's currently at Texas State University with the Texas Rivers Center. His published works have appeared in Texas Monthly, Texas Observer, Houston City Magazine, Politics Today, Texas Highway, Texas Parks and Wildlife, and Texas Town and City, and long been a part of this discussion. Next to him is Amy Hardberger, is a professor of St. Mary's School of Law who teaches property and, and land use planning. And before joining St. Mary's, Amy worked at the Texas Office of the Environmental Defense Fund and at Texas Tech University. She's a member of the State Bar of Texas and the Western District of Texas uh, and is professor, re professional registered geologist in the state of Texas. And then finally, uh, Representative Lyle Larson, a representative from San Antonio, elected in 2010 and currently serves on the House Natural Resources Committee, the Cultural Recreation and Tourism Committee, and the Local and Consent Calendars Committee. Uh, Representative Larson previously served as San Antonio City Councilman and as a Bayer County Commissioner from 1997 to 2008. Uh, I'd like you to join me in welcoming the distinguished panel. And again, our focus is the future of water in Texas. Uh, we all know that last year we faced the largest or the, the most significant single year drought in Texas history. It's brought it to the attention of, of everyone throughout the state, but especially as you remember that as we move forward over the next 50 years, we expect a population to increase by some 75%. And that increase in population and the demands for food, for commerce, for industry, to help support that is going to place more demands on water. And we are faced with 
especially after the drought, will we become increasingly sensitive to droughts and will it limit the future of Texas and the economic development of Texas. So these are the, the topics that we're going to discuss over the course of the next hour. And I thought I'd, I'd just begin with a, a very basic question and perhaps have each of the, the panel address it from their own perspective. Is the basic question is, do we have enough water or is it more of a concern about appropriately allocating it and distributing it across Texas? And perhaps, Representative, if I could ask you to, to sure. start our discussion off. We definitely need some new water in Texas. Uh, if you look at uh, what's happening in West Texas, where the lakes have dried up, uh, they're transporting water as far as 175 miles into some urban areas. Mm. Uh, I, I, there is uh, a lot of uh, opportunity in reuse as well as in conservation measures if we have uniformity. And I think that's something that we've got to focus on where we had in the drought of 2011, folks using the same water source and in different stages of their conservation plan, that indicates that uh, there's some opportunities there as well. Perhaps Amy, your own thoughts on this initial um, comment? Well, I guess, I guess that I'd have to um, qualify that question a little bit and say water for what? So, you know, if the question is, do we have enough water for uh, all the ways that we use and abuse water now going into the future, I would say, you know, as is, the answer is probably no. Um, I think one of the challenges, in addition to perhaps some, some new supply measures, as the representative mentions, is really starting to think about water in a different way. And, you know, part of the way, it, you know, it's beyond conservation. It really is sort of thinking about how we use it and, and what we use it for. So. You know, I would just sort of add to, to the previous comments that we can reallocate water, but we can't create more water. And, and I think that that's something that we always need to remember. We, we don't have the ability, you know, we're not alchemists, we can't invent water. So whenever we take from another water source, move things around and reuse water, we always have to think about who or what is going to be impacted by that rearrangement of systems. So I think that that's really where wherein lies the challenge. This is a big deal. We, um, we our population is going to double in the next 50 years or so, and yet we've already given permission for more water to be withdrawn from many of our rivers than is actually in them. And so we we definitely got a problem. We have a system that, in some cases, particularly in terms of the way we allocate water, goes all the way back to when we were a colony of Spain and yet we bear no resemblance to, to the state in, in the years past. For me, um, I agree with, uh, with what has been said that we, 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 we're Texans, so we should be optimistic that we can get ourselves out of this, but we can't build our way out of it. We really have to change our culture and our, and our procedures. The, the example that I, that I like to use is we treat water as if it were a diff different substance when it's underground than when it's in on the surface. And it's the same water. But yet, we tell someone who's a landowner in the hill country that the water is theirs, and we tell a community or a farmer down the, down the river that the water is theirs. And yet, it's the same water, but we treat it completely differently. And so there's a number of those kind of things that we have to address if we're gonna, if we're gonna find our way out of this. Uh, I, would, I think I agree with just a whole lot of what's been said, but I think it highlights that 
uh, everybody has different perspectives about water. So do we have enough water? I, th I think for the state, the growth that we're experiencing, we're going to have to find ways to develop uh, new sources of water. And, and I, I agree you can't invent water, but there's, there's a lot of water in a lot of forms that can be uh, captured, and I don't know that we've done that. I also agree that we've got to educate and inform and uh, change attitudes about how we use it. Uh, we, uh, people uh, complain about you know, water for agriculture, but yet they're watering you know, lawns. Uh, and uh, we need to make sure that we serve all the needs because everybody needs water in some form or fashion. Uh, just capturing water that runs down the, the rivers and goes into the bays and estuaries, it's above and beyond what's needed. So finding ways to capture the water that we have, finding ways to treat water that's currently not uh, uh, really potable or, or usable. So I, I think for the future, we're gonna find the solutions because we are Texas. But I think there's things that we have to do uh, as citizens is not look at this so locally. Uh, it's gonna have to be Texas helping to solve Texas's problems mm -hmm. and looking at this uh, collectively and not uh, you know, county to county or basin to basin. In that regard, do, do we see the solution to the water problem somewhat like energy independence that is going to take a, a whole uh, range of, of solutions all combined to try to address this, whether it's conservation, whether it's reuse, whether it's new supply? And anyone feel free to, to chime in as they feel yeah, appropriate. I would just uh, I would say yes, I mean, and I think that that's a very important point because what I see is everybody sort of looking for the silver bullet that's going to get us out of this. Um, you know, desal was the prettiest girl in town during the drought and, you know, reuse or, or whatever, um, and, and then, you know, we get blamed for saying conservation too much, and, and the reality is it's going to be a little bit of everything, including um, the culture shift that, that Becky, you know, to which Becky refers, and, and part of that culture shift isn't just the individual um, usage, but as she mentioned, it really is starting to, and sort of playing off what Andy said as well, it really is starting to think about water, uh, you know, regulating water in a way that comports with the science of water. Um, reallocating the same molecule just because it's in two different locations is, is just not going to work. Um, and so it really is a statewide issue, and it's, you know, it's one that we want to look at sometimes regionally. Um, you know, municipalities get blamed because they only care about themselves. Rice farmers get blamed because they only care about themselves. But it's the same water that they care about. So that's the only way it's going to get solved is if, you know, both of them are, are, are working together. In the drought of the 1950s, which we refer to as the drought of the re drought of record, everybody lived in a small town or on a farm or on a ranch. Uh, they had a, a parent or an aunt or an uncle that was on a farm. And so when the drought got bad, everybody knew it. Everybody felt it, and it was a profound impact on our society. Today, I think our people believe that as long as they can go into the kitchen or the bathroom and turn on the tap and water comes out of it, that everything's okay. And it's fundamentally uh, uh, going to require a, 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 a complete shift in our understanding of what this resource means to us. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I our planning, if you look at uh, the Texas Water Plan, it's a compilation of 16 regions have come up with what they think they need in their immediate region. Uh, I think the flaw there is we need to look at 30,000 feet and start looking at projects like they did in the 1950s when they looked at the topography of the land 
and then they started developing surface water projects and they were they were brilliant uh, the engineering they're able to capture those watersheds uh, but we need to now look at worldwide the best technology the best methodology on on bringing new water to bear uh, I think uh, if you look at Lake Travis it's a good example of why you shouldn't store water above ground when you have an opportunity to store it underground. And uh, we've got five billion acre feet, I think, of aquifer storage in the state of Texas. We're utilizing about 130,000, 135,000. Let's, let's look at it, uh, what, what they're doing west of Texas. Nobody builds surface water. In Florida, they don't build surface water projects. They're putting the water underground. And what Becky said, if, if you got these mighty rivers that are flowing in to the Gulf, and uh, it, on an average year, like the Brazos, where they're, they're putting six million acre feet of water uh, into the Gulf of Mexico, their e-flow requirements are 500,000 acre feet. Why aren't we taking that water out and storing it underground? That's what they're doing in all the states west of us. So I think that uh, you don't see that in the, in the regional water plans because these projects are big in scope, but they could benefit so many people both from an industrial base, from a municipality, as well as the ag users. And so that and then the desal. And if you look at some of the large projects that are on the drawing boards now, there's a lot of opportunity to do that as well. So the Texas, if it's the state water plan, the state of Texas needs to be engaged and not just be passive and, and encourage and regulate these 16 regions. I think there is a hybrid of the bottom up and then having some play with the folks uh, at the state level uh, being involved in implementation of some of these programs. And I think, you know, to your question again, I, I, I certainly, all of the points here are valid. And it, it, again, it's, but it's a comprehensive look at solutions because after the drought of record in the 50s, uh, people did, you know, get together and, you know, built significant amounts of reservoir storage. I do agree with Representative Larson that uh, we have to be mindful that water evaporates. Uh, more water evaporated out of Lake Travis in 2011 than the city of Austin used. Uh, but also, uh, just in, from our perspective at LCRA, uh, it, it appears that close to a million acre feet of water uh, in 2012 alone will go into the Matagorda Bay that's above and beyond what's needed for environmental flows. That's the size of Lake Travis. So if we can find ways to even capture that two or three times a year, they've had significantly more rain downstream than, we, than we've had uh, above to fill up the lakes. So taking different uh, approaches, whether it's, you know, uh, capturing excess flows or uh, utilizing aquifer storage, uh, whether it's looking at where desal makes sense, we're going to have to look at all of those in the context of, of the needs. But I, I also think that it is going to be the state of Texas, the, the policymakers, they're going to have to look at uh, all of these, these needs, uh, but the constraints that are around them. And, you know, you can store you can capture water and store it in an aquifer, but if then you're not able to get it back out, um, you know, there's not going to be that uh, impetus to do those kinds of things. I'd like to explore that uh, a bit more because when we, we look at, at uh, a water balance on a reservoir or surface water in East Texas, we, we have a net input of water, whereas in West Texas, of course, it's the other way around. But we have, in some would view, an excess of water in East Texas, but a uh, resounding need along the I-35 corridor and to some extent even further west. 
How do we uh, plan for that, especially given the regional district planning mode that we've been in so far? Well, the Trans-Texas plan always uh, envisioned moving the water from the Sabine River and moving it uh, west. And I, I think there's some opportunities right now. The folks down in Port Arthur, uh, they had uh, less than a year supply of water to cool those refineries down there. And they're looking at innovative ways that they can get a backstop on that. Uh, and they're willing to put money forward to move the water from the Sabine River into the lower Natchez uh, River Authority and move that water down. Well, if you can move that water another 20, 25 miles and hit the Trinity River Authority, that's the holy grail of Texas water. And that's where I think the state of Texas needs to be involved because if we can build uh, a substantial pipeline, put about 600,000 acre feet of water into that Trinity Basin, you protect the industrial complex in the Houston area uh, for the next century. And that would be something that the state needs to be involved in. Then you can start moving some of the water uh, south and west uh, from there once you have, have that, that whole equation figured. So I think that's, again, the value of looking at it uh, from 30,000 feet versus just strictly from a parochial standpoint. There are projects out there. The other thing that we're missing is there's a lot of, a lot of water that's contiguous to the state of Texas, both in Louisiana and in Oklahoma. We don't have a dialogue going on in Baton Rouge and Oklahoma City uh, or Little Rock about all that water that could flow into the Metroplex area. And the reason being is the region plans, they look primarily at the footprint of the state of Texas when uh, there's some compensatory issues that we could work out with those folks, uh, make uh, their state lawmakers look a lot brighter, and at the same time, <laughs> we could capture the water for our use. So I think that there's some things that we need to be very aggressive about in trying to figure out how we can forge these relationships. I suppose there's the, uh, the opposite of the NIMBY, not in my backyard, it's the maybe the NAMBY, not out of my backyard <laughs> waters issue. You get a little of that out of Oklahoma. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, oh, <laughs> I think there's a, a dialogue, it's just, <laughs> I think it's not a nice one. Some of that is because of, of the University of Texas, they play football with that team up in Oklahoma, <laughs> and it's created some problems. I think it's more local than that, not out of my backyard is, yeah. don't take it out of the lakes to give it to somebody downstream. Don't take it here to take it to there. So we, again, it's looking more regionally, more, uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough how much I agree with Representative Larson on looking at this from a 30,000 foot level. And, um, and I think in, in the generations, you know, prior to us saw that, uh, Elstray was created uh, not to build lakes just for lake purposes, but to stop the devastating flooding that was uh, impacting Austin. Uh, you know, just it, the economic devastation to Austin, but, and so, but also to have a, a water supply that would be available. So it was for flood control and water supply. So groups got together that normally wouldn't have gotten together to solve some of those issues. And I think that we're gonna have to be kind of like our forefathers and mothers and uh, all get together and try to figure these things out wh where it's it benefits a larger region than just our own backyard. Mm -hmm. I, I just have a comment about your premise because I think it's sort of an interesting starting point which I think a lot of people just sort of nodded their head but I think it's, it's, a, it's an important question. You started by saying you know East Texas has too much water and West Texas has not enough water. W what does that mean too much that um, 
you know, for the for the all the users there are happy. The human users there are happy. Um, you know that that historically that's a very different climate. It's a very different ecology. That ecology depends on on more water than what you see in West Texas. So, you know, I'm not saying that maybe some of that water isn't appropriate to be transferred out. But I think, you know, I think that the key to what Representative Larson was saying is that it has to be a combination of bottom up and top down. So you can't stay at 30,000 feet and be successful, and you can't stay on the ground and only look at your little fiefdom and be successful. You know, when you look at the 30,000 feet level and you think about moving this water around, you then have to go back down, to go back down onto the ground and really think about what that's going to look like. Because once you put the enormous amount of capital into building this infrastructure, the chances of that water being able to remain in its original basin is almost nothing because now Houston's used to it or Dallas is dependent on it or wherever you're moving it to. So we need to be extremely careful and really look at all the angles before we make these sort of large decisions. It's, you know, it's not in a vacuum. It's not sort of cups of water that you can move around. Things are dependent on that water. Um, you know, downstream users, just from an LCRA sort of perspective, exactly what Becky is sort of highlighting is that everybody down that stream has, has sort of depended on that water and has an important use that needs to be represented. That would be the same in anywhere that you're moving water from one basin into the other. So this notion of extra water is something that I sort of butt up against a lot because I think it's usually a very sort of people-centric view. And when we really look at sort of representing and maintaining what's been in a certain area, um, including lifestyle, fishing, hunting, all that stuff, you find that that level of water that you suddenly thought was extra is, isn't so extra after all. Not to, not to be repetitive, but it's another real good example of the inconsistency in, in water management. The constraints to moving water on the surface uh, westward in Texas are principally legal. But yet, at the same time, uh, a group of investors can drill uh, huge amounts of groundwater and move mm -hmm. it westward without any legal impediment at all, hardly. So once again, mm -hmm. we, we're terribly inconsistent in, in, in how we treat it, whether it's on top or underground. I think you're going to see uh, some movement toward uh, regulating the conjunctive use of water. I think for, for the future you have to. If you look mm -hmm. at the depletions uh, of the surface water out in West Texas and the connectivity it has to the groundwater that's being pumped uh, and it draws it down a lot faster. Even, I, I think, even more of an illustration is in the hill country where you see a lot more uh, <coughs> of, the, of the pumping uh, from, from underground having a devastating impact on the spring flow, which, which subsequently has an impact mm -hmm. in the river flows. Uh, so we've got to be smart about it. Most states do look at conjunctive use. We haven't. We've got two separate uh, forms of governance, both on, on groundwater and surface water. So we're going to have to be smart about it if we're going to sustain the growth that we've got. We've got to utilize the water that we've got available to us now and then the compound and I think Becky hit on it is we're going to look at, we're going to have to figure out how we govern over uh, the the new horizon of Texas water and that's the desalination of brackish water a lot of groundwater folks are saying well no we haven't modeled it but you're going to have to come through us if you're going to be able to uh, to take some of that water you have uh, some munici municipalities in West Texas and in South Texas that are looking at building some large projects uh, but their biggest concern is well how am I going to be treated uh, from the perspective of, of these groundwater districts so we're going to have to figure out the governance on that 
and the governance on the ASRs. Yeah. The biggest yeah. impediment we got in developing underground water storage is the reluctance of folks to go out and store a high volume of water and then have people using the rule of capture to go in and take that water that they stored. So we're going to have to figure out how all that works. It's not rocket science. It's being done in other parts of the country. We're going to have to replicate that and, and, and look at uh, the scarcity uh, that we all faced in 2011 and hopefully we can look at it from a consensus standpoint that we've got to do something a little different. You know, this, um, this issue of um, not out of my backyard is the one place where we are consistent in groundwater and surface water. Nobody wants their water to be exported to someplace else. The idea of moving water from Louisiana into Texas is at least 70 years old, perhaps older. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, uh, a group of, of uh, leading Texas investors, including the person for whom the business school here was named after, have had for probably a decade permit Louisiana, Louisiana portion of Toledo Bend. Now, understand Louisiana's water, not Texas. And they were going to move that water over to the Metroplex. It was cleared by every single state agency and official in Louisiana and was about ready to be launched and the governor vetoed it at the last minute. And so this issue of not out of my backyard is fundamental to moving it, whether it's underground or on the surface. Well, it's always about a, a horse trade. Maybe we can find a way to uh, help with coastal restoration in Louisiana in return for some water. <laughs> we need to get into a multilateral discussion with those folks mm -hmm. and the folks in Oklahoma. If you look at it, there are some trade-offs. And if I think if we get in the same room, we can look at regulatory policies we look at environmental policies and then mm -hmm. uh, there might be some needs for electricity in, in certain parts of those states and then also uh, the, the water issue of bringing some of that water across. They're not using the water. Uh, that's uh, the bottom line. This far from the, count, uh, from the state line of Oklahoma, there's literally millions of acre feet of water that uh, could be sold into the Metroplex area. It makes the most sense. And I think it's just a matter of creating a dialogue and sitting down with the tribal councils and the folks in Oklahoma City about trying to figure out exactly what they need. Uh, and I think that we could probably come to an agreement fairly quickly if the state government got involved. Right now, the Tarrant Regional Water guys are out there on their own, and they're trying to uh, navigate through all of the political issues that you got up in Oklahoma. But I think for the long term, uh, there is a need uh, to, to work with those, primarily uh, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana, because of the abundance of water they have in proximity to our border. Well, one thing I just want to add, one thing that I think is, is sort of becomes, uh, sort of rises to the surface when we start talking about uh, allowing things out of my backyard, whether it be from Oklahoma into Texas or whether it be from East Texas into the Metroplex, is that, you know, water in some ways is shrinking, shrinking our communities in terms of uh, one of the things that we see is that, you know, if, if, I don't want to make a statement for Oklahoma, but you know, if, if somebody believed that somebody really, really didn't have water for their basic needs, there may be more of sort of a willingness to allow that water out. But what ends up happening is when you start talking about transferring water, all of a sudden there's this level of accountability for how the, the people who are going to be benefiting from the transfer are using the water. And so you know, we saw this very much so in the, you know, these sort of talks of moving 
of, um, is it the Natchez Reservoir? The Natchez Reservoir, um, and just generally moving water from East Texas into Dallas, that suddenly East Texas, they weren't defending saying necessarily that they didn't have enough water, but they weren't willing to lose their water for this sort of perception that Dallas was gonna use it for lawns and golf courses. And so I think that that then sort of tips off this notion of priority of uses. And so if we're gonna be moving water around or if we're gonna be spending very large amounts of money for you know, desal and transfer, we really need to make sure that we are doing that for the most critical uses. So it just simply doesn't make sense to be taking all that water for and then treating it to drinking water quality standards to put on turf grass. And I think that a lot of that negative reaction is that, is, is this notion that, that these, these communities are not really maximizing their conservation and efficiency. So why is it that we should have to give up our water before that happens? And, and from a financial standpoint, you don't want to be paying um, to desalinate water to drinking water quality standards to flush it down the toilet and to, to put it on lawn. So I, I think that we really need to think about, you know, when we're thinking about this 30,000 feet and sort of reordering the structure, we really need to make sure that any water that we're paying large amounts of money for is being used for the most important, important uses. And so, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that we're now, that our community and our accountability as far as water is shrinking considerably. And you see that a lot between the rice farmers and the city of Austin. And, and I think it's a valid point. I think it's an important discussion and that I do think if we're gonna be asking for somebody's water or keeping water from going to them, we need to be able to defend our uses. Exploring that a bit more, the 56% uh, of the water, I believe by Texas Water Development Board estimates, uh, the 56% of the current demand in Texas is agricultural irrigation. Uh, and between residential use and agricultural irrigation, I believe it's 85%. And so uh, do you think that this is fundamentally one of the, the issues that different groups feel that other people aren't using that share as, as effectively as they could? Well, it's a, you know, most people don't even know what their water bill is. And I think that's, that's really part of the problem. Water is essential for all of life and we have to be able to provide it uh, at, at, at levels that are required for our people to survive, but at, as we increase these non-essential uses, we should be paying a whole lot more for it than we are today, and, and perhaps some of that behavior would ultimately change. That's uh, the classic uh, discussion right now, is everybody uh, comes into a natural resource meeting and they always point to ag and looking at the high volume. In some <coughs> groundwater areas, it's up to 70% of the water that's being utilized is uh, for agriculture. I think the, the farmers have to demonstrate uh, that they are conserving the water in the best way they can. A lot, you've seen just a proliferation of the pivot irrigation systems, the eco-drip systems, because not, uh, not so much because of the use of water, it just makes good business sense. If you got those pumps on and you're overwatering, uh, then you're probably not running your farm uh, the right way. And mm -hmm. so that's gonna have to be done. But th the classic right now is how much water are the oil field companies using uh, to do hydraulic fracking? And you look at it in the Creasel Wilcox and the Eagleford right now, they're using about 7% of the overall water. Over 60% of the water is being used by ag. And the classic example down uh, in that region is 20 acres of spinach uh, is equivalent, if you look at the full growing seasons, equivalent uh, to one frag job. If you look at the economic value of that, of that, uh, of that drilling rig, it's about $2.3 million initially. And then if, it, uh, if it's fruitful, 
you're looking at a huge economic impact for the state and the region. Well, that 20 acres of spinach is worth less than $5,000. But you can't deprive the farmer of going in and, and uh, irrigating that land. Uh, so that, and then, you know, you look at the electric companies and the volume they use, that's just pass through water. But everybody's looking out how uh, other folks are using the water. And right now, everybody's focused on the municipalities and saying, do you have strong conservation plans in place that when we have drought contingency plans put in place, that you're starting to cut back the amount of, of water, uh, uh, watering your lawns? And I think that's a, a big issue. The problem is the money. If you look at it, most of uh, the municipalities' water systems are within the city structure, and they don't want to see a 30% reduction in their revenues. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you've got some conflict there as well. So, I, I think changing the culture is going to be a little bit more difficult until people realize that if you can reduce the, your need by 30%. By putting year-round best water practices year-round, don't wait for a trigger at, at a lake or a, a groundwater source. Just have it year-round, and you're going to be able to save that much water for the for the long term. You're going to save hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure uh, needs that you can uh, defer to to the future. And I think that's the mindset that we've got to have. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I want to add to that because. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of different groups and just recently to uh, quite a few county judges and then they say, well, what can we do to help? And I think it's, um, it's education and informing and getting people to understand the value of water. Uh, and I think people do not get the value of water yet. It's too easy just to turn it on and I kind of use the example, it's not a prop, we probably pay $1.50 for this uh, if we get it at Costco or somewhere. Uh, maybe a little bit less. So if you had a hundred of these, $150, that's what some people, when we charge water out of, lake, uh, out of the storage, storage in the lakes, it's $150 for an acre foot. So that's an acre of land a foot deep. So to say that that's too expensive, but we'll pay for this. So I don't, I'm not sure that the general public gets the fact that water is something that we all need and just trying to point to you're not doing your part or you're not doing your part. I think we all have got to do our part and figure out that um, we will be creative. Somebody, I think we also have to recognize that Texas is a, Texas is a semi-arid state. It is not going, there are parts of it that there is not a lot of rainfall, uh, but we've got to maximize and optimize the resources that we have but also have people understand that value. So I think what Andy said is so true is uh, getting people to, uh, when you start having to pay uh, relative for the particular uses, I think that value will become apparent to people generally. And that's what it's going to take to fund the state water plan, get, get the projects done, because it's very problematic. I said before, uh, finding a way to develop water or finding a project borrowing the money, those are really the very easy parts of it. But having people want to pay for that is an entirely different story. We certainly uh, don't value water monetarily no, <laughs> by comparison to what right. perhaps we need to. Uh, I'd like to explore the uh, market a little bit more when we think of that spinach farmer, for example. Uh, if there were, some have said that if there's an efficient water market in uh, Texas, then the rice farmer that owns, or excuse me, the, the spinach farmer that uh, 
owns the rights to that water would find it far more lucrative to sell those rights to the hydraulic fracturing or to the oil and gas company. And do we have a, a water market or what can we do to, to develop a water market to better connect the people who need water and are willing to pay for it with those that have the rights? I think in certain parts of the state, obviously I think the, the first uh, entree into that was the, uh, the Edwards region. Uh, when that regulation went in place and they defined the amount of water that was available, we saw water that was worth in 1993 about four to $600 an acre foot. Uh, and the last, the, the last group of water that the San Antonio water system bought was at $5,000 an acre foot. Uh, definitely created, and, and you also create an impetus for the farmers to go out and conserve water. Uh, they're probably the, the greatest uh, conservationists uh, in the Edwards region because what they did was they put pivot irrigation systems in, they reduced the amount of water, they maintained their yields, and they were able to sell that other acre foot off uh, to the city of San Antonio or other folks that needed the water. So that's truly a water market. If you replicate that across the state, then you're going to see the value of water uh, grow. And, and, and Becky and I have had the discussion about the rice farmers, that when you've got a year where you, you know that you're not going to be able to release the water, do what they've done in other states and you put that value based on the commodity price uh, of the end of the growing season the previous year and you do a crop share where you go in and you acquire uh, the water that you're going to have to uh, give them by simply paying them for, for the price of, of the crop that they would yield. It's, it's a good deal in, in the western states uh, because the farmer always knows that they're going to be successful from the standpoint of they're going to have a, uh, some economic value coming back out. So uh, again, that would be changing uh, what we're doing now, but I think there's a lot of value in creating competition for that same water. And I think it, it has uh, existed historically, Andy, you know, just, you know, I'm just kind of whispering about it, but uh, I'm sure it's in other river basins, but years ago, LCRA paid significantly millions of dollars for the water rights that farmers and others held in the lower basin so that, uh, uh, and it was an investment on LCRA's part to try to secure additional priority rights to water so that you could optimize the use over the years. So there has been this trading and selling of water uh, for years and I, I think it's going to continue, uh, you know, yeah, I would just say that, I mean, I feel like we've sort of touched on this, but we have a significant legal impediment to, to a water market, and that is we have right of capture for groundwater. Um, you know, what created the Edwards Aquifer, as Representative Larson uh, stated, what created the market was a cap. I mean, I'm not an economist, but you have to have limited goods in order for that price to go up. Um, it is limited. I mean, we don't have unlimited resources, but there isn't sort of a legal structure that sort of recognizes that. So, you know, when we look at sort of what Western states are doing and some of the successes they have, we have to recognize that we have a legal structure that is is completely different. Um, when we have something with right of capture, and now we have a new, a newer, um, you know, Supreme Court decision that in fact that water is vested and. Um, potential, you know, overregulation might result in a takings. That becomes very difficult for a lot of the things, the ideas that we're really proposing here. Everything from, you know, ASR as, as we talked about aquifer storage and recovery, um, as well as just a water market. Um, so there, there is a water market in terms of you can, you know, you can in some cases, um, you know, as Andy mentioned, pump it and sell it. 
but you're not going to have a true market pressure because it's until, unfortunately, until it's all gone. And that's not really, I mean, the problem with markets, if you don't have a good market driver or a cap, is that the value is not going to go up. When we talk about value and pricing of water, the, the price is not really going to go up until we're out. And then we're going to have this new infrastructure that the prices are going to be passed on. What we, what we essentially would like to do is price it higher before so that people you know, conserve. So things like um, you know, dry year options where we pay people to have dry years, or in the Edwards where we do have a market, we encourage basically through financial means this sort of conservation so they can sell. You know, so what some states have done is um, the, if they, you know, because you have to get a permit change for the portion that you sell, they sort of fast-tracked that permit change. And interestingly, one of the things that states have done is if a rice farmer says, for example, uh, I'm not trying to pick on rice farmers, it's easy, and puts in some sort of conservation method such that they only need 50% of the water that they did before, they can sell 40% of that water through a fast-tracked initiative, and 10% goes back to the state to put into in-stream flow, flows. Because one of the issues that we have when we're trying to meet our environmental flows targets um, is that many of these streams are already over-allocated. So the question then becomes, how do we get some of that water back? So there are some very interesting policy initiatives that you can do that combine a market approach but also recognize the importance of in-stream flows. And it sort of allows us to go backwards a little bit um, because we do have so many over-allocated uh, allocated rivers. But uh, And the last thing I want to say, just to sort of, because I feel like I have to throw it in, is again, I feel like we have to be a little careful when we talk about market approaches when you talk about, well, wouldn't the spinach farmer just want to sell to a fracker? I mean, there are a lot of implications to that that I think as a community we would really have to think about, yeah, maybe that's the highest market need for that moment, but what are the long-term costs of that? And I think we're so focused on the money that's coming in that we're not looking at the long-term costs of one user over another. So I just have to throw that in. Before we uh, end our discussion, I'd like to explore some more of the those that can't speak for themselves, the uh, ecosystem, the uh, uh, and I would I would like to say how how do we make sure that they have a place at the table? Well, I, I'm glad that you asked that question because I was I was going to introduce it even if you hadn't have asked. <laughs> we 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 need to understand that the environment is a need for water just as industrial, municipal, agricultural. The environment is a need, and what we what we have traditionally done is we've said, okay, well, if we have any left, you know, maybe we'll use it for the environment. W this is not only an issue of our, the survival of our ecosystems and our quality of life, it's, a, it's an important legal consideration. We, we have the Edwards Aquifer Authority because the federal courts demanded that we put management over the Edwards Aquifer. We're going to have that same issue arise in surface water in Texas if we don't understand that we need to address the environmental needs that water presents. It's a, it's a business issue as well as a quality of life issue. Let me, I'm going to say something that actually looks like I may be in defense of the rice farmers, but again, I think it gets to Amy's point of uh, don't just look at from the 30,000 foot level, but also get down. Uh, it's not just about the individual rice farmers. Mm -hmm. Those are economies down there, but there's also an environmental issue. And one of the things that we've had to look at is because this is the first year, there wasn't enough water. And, and so for the most part, uh, the agricultural interest downstreams were not uh, allowed to have any water. We didn't release any. There was a, a little bit down there. We did some uh, kind of pilot type stuff. 
but you have a whole uh, ecosystem of the geese and the ducks that come in there in large numbers, they're not going to have the food that's needed. Uh, those rice fields, those, those wetlands uh, create food for uh, this vast migration. So just looking at it from, well, uh, I don't want those individuals to have the water. There's economies built around that and there are environmental systems built around that. So I think we've got to be mindful of all of that. I have a Labrador retriever that's going to be very, very disappointed if we don't have to spend some time in the rice fields this year. Well, after living in Louisiana for 23 years, I depend on my annual crawfish boil, which is usually off of the rice double one. Uh, one final uh, question. We've talked a lot about uh, policy approaches and, and legal issues and concerns and, and problems. To what extent do you think that there are serious technical issues. Uh, I, for example, have, have been working to try to develop a, a, a policy approach that would be aided by a National Research Council-like activity. That is, uh, I've been involved in a number of National Research Council committees where a group of experts try to define uh, technological issues or resolve technological issues that, that might uh, uh, currently impede our ability to, to develop water supplies. Do you think there's room for that in, in Texas, or do you think there's a, a need for that, or do you think that the, the policy and legal issues are really paramount? Well, there are some technical issues, primarily dealing with the desalination of brackish water and coastal water. Uh, you've got to deal with the concentrate, and so there's a, a lot of uh, different overtures in trying to reconcile that issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's technical in nature. The, the other aspect is uh, the TCEQ group, uh, if, if you want to build one, you've got to create a pilot prior to, to putting in the full implementation of a plan. That's a technical issue. I think uh, that the technology is being used in 130 countries around the world, but in Texas, we're still having to develop pilots. And I think the, that is a huge impediment from a financial standpoint. Uh, and we need to sort of work through some of that, get people comfortable with it. And if it's done properly, uh, there's a lot of water out there for folks to capture. I think we've still got a lot to learn about um, groundwater. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of questions that still rattle the, the, the water community as to uh, whether or not there's a gap between um, Uvalde and New Braunfels that the water does low. I mean, we, we, we argue about it interminably. So we, we still have a lot of science in terms of groundwater that I think is, uh, should be at the forefront of our research investments. Yeah, I would just add one other thing that I notice a lot that, that people don't sort of, uh, with, that we as a community don't understand about groundwater is I think that there is, because the way we look at surface water that it's visible in terms of its sort of refilling and recharging capacity, that there's an assumption a lot of times that, that a, you know, an aquifer, you dewater it and then it rains, it sort of fills back up at whatever, you know, a rate. You just take that number times the rate. When in fact it's it's considerably more complicated. Old studies of the of the Edwards when it was allowed to be dewatered before the Edwards Aquifer Authority came into place show that once it starts to get dewatered to a certain point, it starts to refill in a totally different way. Um, so the actual groundwater flow dynamics change. So you know when we're talking about uh, groundwater management areas and um, you know desired future conditions, and we're we're going to allow the aquifer to you know go down to this level. Um, you know, we need to make sure that the science is there that, okay, well, if we take it down to that level, will it actually fill back up and will it fill up where we, we want it to fill up? 
So that ends up being, and will a bad water line migrate if we have it down that low? So these type of scientific issues are, are critical when we're actually making policy decisions about how much an aquifer can go down. I have the great pleasure and privilege of working at the springs in San Marcos. And we have water that is coming out of those springs that fell as rainfall during our recent rains two weeks ago. But we also have water coming through those springs that fell as rain 70 years ago in Brackettville. And we have very little understanding of how that, mm -hmm. how that whole process works. We've got the, the two bookends of the state, the Ogallala and the Gulf State Aquifer. You look at the two, uh, 2060 uh, plan to deal with that, they're into perpetual mining. Uh, we're in depletion mode on though. We hope that we still have 50% of the water left in the Texas, uh, uh, the Texas side of, of the Ogallala. I think that's unacceptable. Uh, we need to use science to figure out how we can uh, supplement or augment the recharge there. You've got the Playa Lakes. We've got huge siltation uh, in most of those Playa Lakes. If you clean them, intuitively you would think that we're going to get more of a flow. And you, you do have different flow patterns in uh, the Ogallala as far as recharge. Some of it is ancient, uh, where you get water that's up to 200 years old that they're extracting mm -hmm. out of it. Some of it is relatively new water. So we need to use science from a technical standpoint and be smart about that. That water doesn't move. It only it moves 100 to 130 feet a year. So we're going to take advantage of it, but we need to use from a technical standpoint uh, how they're, they're supplementing water in those types of aquifers worldwide. I, I think I would add, I mean, I agree with that. I think there's another kind of, you know, science and understanding and education that needs to happen. Uh, and it's, it's rarely talked about because it often is uh, uh, somewhat politically incorrect, but we've got a lot of invasive species in this mm -hmm. state that, that take a tremendous amount of water, uh, juniper, mesquite. And I think we're going to have to look at uh, how are those types of species uh, being allowed just to populate without any kind of regulation and how much water that they are actually consuming. So the, you know, I think we have vast resources, but we're going to, we're going to need the science, whether it's groundwater and, and how does it really uh, operate and replenish, but also on the surface, you know, what are the, the species of plant and whatever else that are consuming water that is really, you know, not a best use of, of uh, our water resources. I was um, in Dallas this week and <clears throat> had the opportunity to hear uh, a, a talk by the head of the North Texas Municipal Water District who said that the biggest expenditure that they made last year was in control of zebra mussels. Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous problem, as Becky That's says, right. with exotic species both on the landscape and in the water. Exactly. Okay. Well, I. I've had a chance to ask a number of questions. I, I think I should uh, provide the audience an opportunity to ask a few questions of their own. If the individuals handling the microphones, perhaps this person on the left. I have a real quick question about um, rainwater collection. As a landowner in the Hill Country, I do this for my house, and the quality is far superior um, to anything, desal or municipal water, and I've heard you talk a lot about desal and other collection sources, and I understand the allocation for the rivers has already been allocated, so is rainwater collection in any part of the debate or the discussion as how to augment water supply, or I understand it may not be practical from an agricultural standpoint, but what about individuals? 
uh, are there any credits for retrofitting homes or um, or um, mandating that new construction uh, uh, include infrastructure for rainwater collection? Um, some cities have, as part of their conservation initiatives, had rebate and incentive programs for rain barrels. Uh, just sort of caution, just as a sort of a policy, interesting policy note, there are some western states that have actually prohibited um, rainwater capture at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just a reminder, when, when we talk about large quantities of rainfall capture, that rainfall is going somewhere, right? I mean, that rainfall is what fills our streams and aquifers. So um, while I certainly think, you know, in some smaller uh, instances it's a great idea, I think, again, we have to be cognizant of where was that drop going to go? And mm -hmm. so, you know, there may be ways that may be a good way to redirect it, it may be a bad way, but when we talk about sort of designing our in-stream flow protocols, those are assuming that a certain volume of water that rains down is gonna make it into the streams, the rivers and streams as they would have under normal conditions. So it, it gets to be a somewhat complicated issue and I think it sort of highlights the fact that every drop is going somewhere and, and has an end point. And so whenever we intercept it, it's not necessarily bad, but we do need to take a minute to consider what we're intercepting it from. Seems some great innovative strategies up in the Hill Country. John Kite and Bernie, I think he's sort of the godfather of rainwater harvesting. <laughs> and I, I can tell you that the state, we had some uh, initiatives uh, come through our committee that dealt with that, and we're trying to, to, to make sure those incentives stay in place, <coughs> that people are encouraged to put, that, put in uh, mainly the residential uh, rain harvesting systems, and they can control their own destiny. Uh, regardless of what uh, what water's available. <laughs> Perhaps a question I, I, from I, this. I need to add because oh. he gave me the idea, but I can say it. I think the Highland Lakes are a rainwater collection, and yeah, I do. Exactly. I so agree with Amy. We we need to be very careful uh, because the water is going to go somewhere, and the streams and the rivers need some amount of inflow, uh, and runoff is predominantly where that comes from. So. One of the most um, potentially unifying, but also daunting you know, aspects of this entire issue is that everyone lives downstream from somebody else. Yeah. Exactly. And we always have to remember that. That's right. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Representative, you had spoken briefly about um, the need for uniformity amongst different basins, municipalities, counties. Uh, how do you think the legislature can help in doing that? And as a follow-up, do you think that the legislature will move on uh, water issues this uh, session? Well, obviously, uh, uh, there needs to be uniformity, and I, I think it was uh, uh, it was startling uh, to see uh, several communities in the central part uh, of the state uh, that were over the same source of water. Some had already uh, had activated stage three. They had in, in an adjacent county. They hadn't even started uh, their drought management plan, and uh, that's unacceptable. So. I don't know if we can do it legislatively other than encourage it, uh, or there might be an opportunity uh, to, to look at what other states have done to, to get better compliance on that. As far as the state addressing the water issue, I think it's incumbent upon our leadership uh, to hear the alarm that went off in 2011. Uh, if we don't, that will be their legacy. And uh, I, would, I would say from the governor to everybody in the House and the Senate, uh, that they need uh, to recognize this is the largest economic impediment if we're going to sustain growth is water. Water states, states uh, that are, they're the states that are rich with water, 
they're already beating us. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're basically showing the illustration of Spicewood Beach or Robert Lee or, or Grosbeck, the, the, the communities where all of the national media flowed in and watched us truck water into those communities. And we've got larger communities that have less than 18 months of water right now in West Texas that are up to 100,000 uh, folks. So I think that if we don't react, uh, shame on us. And I think that we do need to fund uh, the state water plan or, or some, uh, uh, some facsimile of the water plan that we've got. I think we need more innovative strategies. Uh, but for us to, to be the catalyst, we're going to have to put money in the game. I'm openly advocating take a billion dollars from the rainy day fund and use that as seed capital like they've done in other parts of the world and uh, other parts of this country where we don't give the money out, we hold equity in projects and we drive those projects uh, to being developed. Those demonstration projects the state's involved in I think will create uh, an environment where other folks will look at building out uh, some of the needs that they have for the long term. It's, it's kind of fitting to have that discussion across the street from the Bullock Museum. Over the, uh, over the past 15 years or so, the legislature has enacted three very, very important and comprehensive pieces of water legislation. But that process started because a former Lieutenant Governor, Bob Bullock, understood that it was important and made it happen at the highest level of state government. I would just add on the uniformity thing quickly. You know, the uniformity or the lack of uniformity isn't just seen on a state level, it's even seen on a municipal level, which I think, you know, Representative Larson was touching on when you have, you know, one community in drought and then you don't have sort of the peripheral areas. Dallas made an effort um, with the whole Metroplex to, to have a uniform sort of uh, drought management plan and unfortunately a couple of the cities backed out, which would have been, you know, when you have people, I mean, part of this change to a conservation culture is the importance of people seeing everybody sort of doing the same thing. So, you know, there are these things that are happening that, that, that make me just sort of scratch my head. One example is that the city of Austin is allowing people to drill personal wells in their backyard. Um, who can afford it at the rate of anywhere from eighteen to thirty thousand dollars so that they can have lush green lawns because they can afford it when the rest of the city has limitations either from drought management or they're having to pay by gallon mm -hmm. um, you know this is just a, a bad idea um, you know it doesn't this is not going to get us there because that water is now being used mostly on lawns and it's also just a you know it's a bad example another one is that when I was working at Texas Tech, the city of Lubbock was in drought restrictions, but Texas Tech, the campus, was watering like crazy because they had their own wells, um, and they weren't under the city. But it was coming from the exact same aquifer. Literally, the wells for the city and the wells for the campus were half a mile away from each other. And so they're watering at 3 in the afternoon, and people in Lubbock are letting their, you know, as they drive by on their way home, see these green lawns to their dead lawns. So, you know, this, these sort of things just have to stop if we're really going to have this sort of shift that I think the policy needs, um, you know, the financial needs. I mean, I think that it would support policy for people to understand the situation, and it's hard to understand the situation when you see your neighbor watering like crazy and you can't. I think it changes, it shifts the conversation from where it should be. It's certainly not an example of leadership from our university system. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk to uh, the Ken Rainwater director. Texas, I have to say, has done, you know, they've really done a much better job on this campus than some of the other universities, so I have to give credit to them. Well, unfortunately, our hour has come to an end, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, I invite you perhaps to talk to, to some of our discussants 
outside, uh, but we will have another session here uh, in the energy environment schedule beginning in, in some 15 minutes. I'd like to thank you for your attention. I'd, I'd like all of us to thank our discussants again. Thank you.